as has been true certainly already today, we've known many blessings in the physical realm that God has shared about us, and yet as the shades of evening are gathering about us, we again have the privilege of assembling in His name. And it's, of course, our goal to offer a worship that's certainly in harmony with His will and certainly motivated by the Spirit as you and I are emotional and eager to offer the worship to the One who made us. Tonight, as we come to the sixth installment in a series of lessons touching the subject of the making of the Bible, we have found that our study has brought us an interesting series of journeys throughout history as we come to appreciate the precious treasure of the Word of God that you and I now so marvelously enjoy, the sacred scriptures. In fact, as we very briefly rehearse some of the features in that series of lessons, we begin with a highlight to the character of that Word that is the Word of God. Following that, we looked at the manuscript evidence that it touches the Old Testament, the feature and the confidence and reliability you and I can have in those Old Testament Scriptures. Following that, we considered two lessons revolving around the New Testament and also found that we too can have the utmost of assurance in the integrity of those 27 books of the New Testament that you and I also have. It is with that in mind we came to look most recently at that last lesson that again related to the New Testament, but it had to do with the nature of some very intricate features that still are so wonderfully encouraging to all of us. Tonight, as we continue that series, we come to, again, lesson number six. I've simply entitled it Developments. I thought that it might be wise for us to really continue almost where we left off last Sunday night and allow that to carry us forward through history a bit, but also bring to bear some very vital matters for you and me today as we consider the matter of the Bibles available to you and to me. The early years. You remember that as we came to observe the lesson last Sunday in particular, we came to appreciate that those New Testament documents were originally written in Greek. And that was not just classical Greek, it was Koine Greek. It was that Greek of which the common individuals could understand and they could converse in it. And they could appreciate the things it had asserted and the character of what it was that it described. In terms of that, though, perhaps these next statements probably are not that shocking to us. It wasn't very long before there was an obvious need for translations into other languages because, after all, everyone was in need of the gospel. Jesus commissioned those apostles, and, of course, by virtue of the integrity of the continuing instructions in it, everybody needed it, and therefore the translation into other languages came fairly quickly. I've chosen just a very few references Maybe we're familiar with the Syriac language. It probably reminds you a little bit of Aramaic. And yet we well know because copies have already been appreciated. There were copies in the language known as Syriac before 180 AD. That is to say, just a little over 50 years likely after the last book of the New Testament was written, there were already copies in these other languages that had been made. Another example would be the Latin language. You and I probably recognize that as the principal language of the Roman Empire. Maybe it isn't too surprising that copies into Latin were made, and again, they have been discovered, dated, it would appear, earlier than 150 A.D. Another example, the Coptic language. That's the language spoken in Egypt. 
copies are already known that date it no later than 200 A.D. We can again see that these copies or translations into these other languages were very much easily appreciated. And not only that, you might appreciate some of the initial features that not only went along with all of these, but something that's very challenging to you and me today. You and I have such ready access to a Bible. You can go and buy them at Walmart or buy them at the Dollar General store for just a very few dollars in most cases. But think again about those individuals who lived that long ago, long before there was any printing presses. The only copies of the Scriptures were those that had been made by hand. The only copies were those that had been made in a way like that, and therefore there were not all that many of them. And the ones that there were were reasonably expensive, at least for the funding or monies of that day. So safe to say, very few people had a copy at their house. Now, there were copies in the places of worship, and hence when you came, you could hear someone read from it, but you couldn't take it home with you. For that reason, that leads to these comments. For those that had it, there was a great encouragement to read it. But you might well imagine, and many of us probably would have been in a position where we wouldn't have had our own personal copy, how vital it would have been to listen carefully to those who did read it during the worship services. For that reason, many seemingly developed the capability of memorizing large portions of it. Individuals, as they would hear it, they could thus commit it to memory. And isn't that still a wonderful blessing? To be able to recollect passages of Scripture and to be able to recognize them. In fact, I would ask you to notice that there are a number of passages in the Bible that encourage you and I along that line. In Psalm 119, verse number 11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. To hide the word of God in our heart. Isn't that still a wonderful thing? In verse 93 of that same chapter, we're told, I will never forget thy precepts. As you and I comment about the interesting power that comes with the knowledge of the word of God, how especially important would that have been to those individuals living then? As we carry that train of thought furthermore, there have been many who've wondered. You and I appreciate the blessing of literacy and being able to read. I wonder how many people in that ancient era knew how to read. That's still an open question. It would seem in light of a, that there was, of course, many things to read from the ancient Roman or even ancient Greek society. No doubt many could. And there was a system of instruction of education in the Roman Empire. However, I would ask you to notice that it's clear that there's a sufficient amount of evidence that by the end of the third century, the literacy rate had declined significantly. There simply was not an, a continuing consideration of importance to it, and therefore many had lost the capability to read as fluently as perhaps had been the case in previous days. That leads me to note, there also had become a significant opposition to many Roman, Roman leaders. You might have heard stories about certain of the Roman emperors who in fact strongly waged a war of opposition against the church. Christianity was not the friend of many in the early days of the Roman Empire. The Roman rulers persecuted those that were Christians, many times putting them to death. 
surely then some of these comments are in order. You can imagine as some of those Roman rulers and the nature of the persecution that they encouraged, what a great change was wrought in the year 313 A.D. when the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. And at that moment he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And all the persecution that had been known previously and all the difficulties surrounding it suddenly vanished away. The government supported it. I might ask you to at least ponder, isn't it true that in the days of the book of Acts, sometimes when the persecution was the most strong was when the church grew its fastest. When individuals understood the nature of what was involved in it. After Constantine declared it so, there wasn't nearly as much of a heightened growth of the church it would seem from history. Maybe some of these last comments then are in order. The translations to which I mentioned earlier, they necessarily continued. One of the most influential was made by Jerome. It was his Latin Vulgate. That came about 400 A.D., and it was the translation into Latin. Now, that translation, it wasn't the first one, but it was much more finely done than had been the previous ones. It will be that translation that will have a great bearing on things for a thousand years. We'll have more about that to say about that in just a moment. As we come to the close of that slide, it's interesting that some of the copies, of course, the particular copies of the Scriptures, it's apparent from some of the statements from history that sometimes folks misuse those copies, and that's a tragedy. But that also gave an encouragement to many in religion not to openly use the translations in fact, as we will study the Catholic Church in just a moment, we notice they, in fact, did not want the Scriptures to be read from. And part of it was they were somewhat fearful that individuals would misuse what they had heard and they would not appreciate it. As you and I think about the danger inherent in something like that, we close that slide with this. When the Roman Empire fell in 476 A.D., there was a monumental change this infrastructure that had in fact supported education and nice road systems and at least a character of respect for law. When the Roman Empire crumbled, all of that crumbled with it. For the next several hundred years, there was a heightened nature of lawlessness, looting and thievery and things like that. And as such, quite often it was much more difficult to send missionaries or evangelistic work. People were fearful for their lives. Not only that, Bible ignorance increased as well. The infrastructures of education, of course, fell all along with it. As we transition over to the next slide, we come to what frequently is called the Dark Ages. I would ask you to think again about how special it is to realize the power of the Word of God as you and I do today. As you imagine, the circumstances in which some of these individuals live were now entering this period of the Dark Ages in our study. When the Roman Empire fell in 476 A.D., it ushered in a period of around 800 years that's often still today called the Dark Ages. A part of the darkness surrounded the fact that the Word of God was not as openly appreciated its matters were not utilized as thoroughly to guide the hearts and lives of individuals as it had been previously. 
as we develop that, why don't we understand a little bit about it from this perspective? Remember, our goal is to think about the Bible in light of all of it. You'll notice somewhere near the top of that slide, there you can appreciate there was an increase in illiteracy. People could not read the things that were presented to them, and thus, even if there were a copy of the Bible available, they, at least in, by and large, were not able to read it. Aren't you thankful that your parents saw to it, or by some other means you became able to read, so that you could read the Word of God for yourself, and you didn't have to just depend on someone else sharing with you in truth what it says? Think about what a dangerous circumstance in some ways was characteristic of this time period. Individuals that couldn't read, you had to trust that what that person was telling you was in fact the Word of God and that they had not changed it or altered it in any way. Somewhat shocking to all of that, we now bring in the thoughts of some of those who did faithfully copy it. The monks. You've probably heard about those who worked in monasteries and otherwise and although there might be some interesting things to say, really our only interest for this moment is to appreciate they, by and large, took it upon themselves to copy the Scriptures through this period of the Dark Ages. They copied it so that there were extant copies of it for various places of worship. When you think about a copy of the Word of God, that next slide brings us to note this. It was during this period that the chapter divisions of the Bible also appeared. Those original autographs that spoke again in Greek about the nature of the New Testament and those Hebrew Old Testament ones, when those were given, they weren't divided into chapters. Men did that admittedly. Now, their motivation was often very good. But I would ask you to notice the name of Stephen Langton. It is He who divided the Word of God into chapters, and of course we're still thankful that He did. It allows us to compartmentalize and think about certain sections and appreciate the movement of the Word of God. But you'll notice He did this near the beginning of the 13th century. As He divided it into chapters for all of us to at least consider, you'll notice that the next observation is this one. It appears from all the evidence that we have that there was a great deal of respect by the common people for the Bible. But again, there was a great deal of illiteracy and many of them had a strong deal of lack of knowledge with respect to it. May I again ask, aren't you thankful for your knowledge of the Bible? Aren't you thankful for your appreciation of that which it teaches? Concerning the plan of salvation, concerning the church, concerning the nature of heaven, we certainly are thankful for all those things. It is here where we have the opportunity to revisit the statement of the Catholic Church on this point. It's well known that the Catholic Church at this time in history did not want readings from the Scriptures. They were fearful that people who heard it would misuse it or misinterpret it or fail to appreciate it, and therefore they just preferred it not to be read. Seems to me what a strange way of looking at that. But at the very least, we know it's true. In light of that, you can appreciate some of these statements. The Catholic Church, of course, had all their church services performed in Latin. 
And yet, by the time we reach the 11th or 12th or 13th centuries, very, very few people know any, any longer knew Latin. And therefore, church services were often spoken in languages that people didn't understand. Can you imagine how very unproductive it would be if someone were to stand before us and lead us to sing songs in Russian or read before us in Chinese? Well, none of us would be able to glean a great deal out of what was sung or of what was read. That was the predicament in which at least some of those services mentioned on that occasion found themselves involved in. I suppose by all of this time, we're now beginning to appreciate that surely there was a great need and interest in an English translation of the Bible. That is to say, we've studied about translations into Syriac and Coptic and other languages. What about English? Into this scenario comes the name of John Wycliffe. Very bottom of that slide. You might appreciate that he was highly and very strongly motivated to provide a translation into English so that some of the problems you and I have noted already would not be an issue any longer. And he wanted the common people to have access to the Word of God. What a noble endeavor. He and some associates set out then to produce this, and they succeeded. Not without great opposition, we might know, but they succeeded. About the year 1380 A.D., translating the Bible from Latin into English, as they did that, producing, of course, a particular translation into English, it brings us to notice an even finer or an even greater effort in one regard. Top of that slide, if you'd notice it with me, please. You come to appreciate the efforts and the work of a gentleman named William Tyndale. Much could be said about him, but at least for now, our principal interest is this. He recognized that translating the Scriptures from Latin into English was still not the ultimate ideal. It would be far finer to translate it from the original Greek into English. And thus he set out on what would in many ways be a lifelong work to seek to translate the Scriptures, the Holy Word of God, from its original Greek into English. I might ask you to notice very briefly, he even made various comments to those with whom he could converse on that occasion, desiring that even a common laborer in the field would know more Scripture than those that were regarded as the high influential people in society. It was genuinely Tyndale's desire for everybody to have access to the Word of God. That particular desire motivated him so. You might notice the great opposition the Catholic Church levied against him, threatening his life and even in part ultimately bringing about his own demise. I would ask you to notice in particular, he ultimately fled for his own safety to Germany and there he ultimately succeeded in the publishing of the Word of God. You and I today can still be thankful for the easy access to the Bible. But as we continue our development, it brings us to notice the following. This man, William Tyndale, who so often set forth on the efforts of this desire to bring about the Bible openly available for, for everybody, look at the way he died. 
He was finally arrested by those agents of the Catholic Church and those who, of course, were influenced by them. He was imprisoned, and ultimately he was strangled, and his body was burned in October of the year 1536, all because he had a desire to present the Word of God. What about you and me today? Would you and I love it so that we would even give our life for it? Do you and I have a strong enough consideration and assurance and faithfulness of it and its promises that we, like He, would be willing to die for what it says? One has to at least admire the commitment and the confidence that He exerted toward that end. Following His efforts, there were others who made revisions of that English translation. I've quickly listed a few of them, but I would ask you to notice we rapidly come, of course, to arguably the most influential Bible ever to be produced. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, and you may well be holding one in your lap. When we think about the efforts of William Tyndale about the early part of the 16th century, we rapidly raised to again some revisions, but it soon became apparent that there still could be an improvement because other kinds of documents had been discovered. The church, you might realize, is so marvelously blessed even now with this King James translation of the Bible. King James, who took over from a very wicked predecessor of his as the leader of, of the nation of Great Britain, he commissioned very soon after he became king to produce a finer and better set of instructions concerning the Word of God. He thus set about the following commissioning. In the year 1604, he commissioned the finest scholars available to, in fact, use the Greek uh, statements and the Greek text available to them and produce what was regarded at that point as the finest translation into English that was available. It came to be called the King James Translation of the Bible, made available in 1611. That Bible that you hold, at least by and large, it harkens back to the days that long ago. With it, these comments are in order. Some of the things that James, as the king, demanded of it, it was to have no translator's comments in it. That was one of the problems of the previous kinds of biblical translations available. Not only was the biblical text there, but the translators would insert their own comments and those tended to be divisive, and they tended to produce factions. James decreed this one was to have no such thing. And not only that, you may notice there were 12 translators who worked in six groups of two. And upon finishing, they checked each other's work, and so a particular passage in its translation was checked no less than six times total before it ended up being decided upon as the text in that translation. When you and I think about the King James translation, at the bottom I have simply stated, and I believe it would be fair to say, it has been the most influential version of the most influential book ever written. How many have been led on the way to heaven by it? How many have been able to reflect upon the sweetness and the presentation of that translation? But as you and I well know, it isn't the only English translation. And perhaps there are additional comments worthy to note. 
haven't really said too much about it along the way except a brief statement in the very first lesson of our series. But as you and I think about the philosophy that should be characteristic of those who translate the Bible, what kind of philosophy should be utilized and what kind of philosophy should be adopted? There's a wide range of extremes that one might consider. There are those who perhaps would say, as one looks at the original Hebrew or the original Greek, the translator should take that word in Hebrew and insert what is its equivalent in English or in Russian or in Chinese or whatever other language is being translated into. That kind of philosophy is called a word-for-word translation philosophy. As you notice, the particular motivation for that is to preserve as closely as possible the words that God initially through the Holy Spirit presented to those initial individuals. The word-for-word characteristic of that translation. As you and I think about that kind of philosophy, I believe we'd all appreciate that that would be a very wise kind of philosophy. Because isn't it true? We are interested in the Word of God. We're not interested in the Word of the translator, no matter how scholarly he may be. We're interested, you see, in the Word of God. And you'll notice that some translations are predicated or motivated by that kind of presentation. I would ask you to notice. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2, Earlier this evening, it was read in our hearing from that very passage in which the Apostle Paul made a marvelous statement to the church in Corinth. It was to them that he asserted, We are not of those which handle the Word of God deceitfully. That immediately suggests that it is possible, isn't it, to handle the Word of God in a deceitful way, to handle it with ulterior motives, to handle it in a way to send forth a message which God never instilled within it. That would be incredibly dangerous, wouldn't it? When you think about that, you might remember in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter even made warning about some of the writings of Paul so that we would ever regard careful interpretation of it because if we mishandle it, we could rest, W-R-E-S-T, our own souls. None of us want to endanger our souls by failing to handle the Scriptures properly. But that brings us to this rather strange observation. I've highlighted throughout this subject tonight in so many ways, translation. And yet today there are kinds of Bibles that you can find that can be utilized basically to teach nearly anything that you want to have taught. Now notice again what that indicates. Now it's almost advertised that you can have a Bible of your own choice. In other words, whatever particular thoughts you have or whatever particular leanings in life you have, you can find a Bible that will endorse it. You can have a Bible that will be written in a way to teach that. Well, we might say now that's a deceitful handling of the Bible. That's changing and contorting what God revealed to make it fit what I wanted to say. That's not a faithful translation, any such thing as that, is it? You'll notice in particular, if you happen to want a Bible that teaches salvation by faith alone, you can find one. In fact, there are many of them. Several verses in the Revised Standard Translation basically are worded in a way to teach that very thing. 
if you happen to particularly not be fond of water baptism for salvation, you can find a Bible that will teach the questionability of water salvation and you could be saved without it. In fact, I'd ask you to notice again, there are certain verses in the Revised Standard Version that are written in that way. If you happen to be of a position that wants to think about being in Christ without having faith, the NIV, the New International Version, in part, will teach something along that line. Whatever your favorite doctrine is, you can almost find a Bible that will endorse or at least encourage that way of thinking. But oh, how dangerous. The mishandling of the Scriptures, I would ask you to notice, leads you to notice some of the implications of that at the very bottom of that slide. I've only made a very short selection there are much more things that could well have been shared, but at least these are in order. I'd like to ask you to listen to this verse. In Romans 11, verse number 20, as quoted in the Revised Standard Version, it reads like this. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast only through faith. Not become proud, but stand in awe. Now, did you notice the assertion? That's in the midst of a consideration which Paul was discussing, the introduction of the Gentiles. But you'll notice that, at least according to that translation, the phrase is only through faith. As if there are no other features or issues that might need to be considered. As you look at that particular consideration, and others might well also be listed, it just causes us to think twice about the integrity of translations and to make sure that that translation was motivated, motivated by a word-for-word -word translation philosophy. Many times the prefaces of a given translation will tell you what philosophy the translators used. Sometimes it's a very shocking thing to read. As you think about that example, perhaps another one is in order. Some of the ones on this particular slide also cause a great deal of interesting reflection. I believe each of us are well aware of the Bible's teaching on subjects like divorce and remarriage and how that Jesus spoke about those things and they weren't popular then and they still are not in many ways very popular. Look at this particular translation. You probably will recognize it immediately, but there were two, both taken from the gospel according to Matthew. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Probably as you listen to that, you immediately recognize something. The translators changed the wording of what the Lord said. Jesus said for fornication, and they said marital unfaithfulness. And there's no question that this is a broader consideration than the former. A lot of things might be housed beneath the umbrella of marital unfaithfulness, but that isn't what Jesus said. To make the matter even worse, look at Matthew 19, verse number 9, taken from the same translation. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Two things leap off the page to you and me about that. One... They again changed the wording to marital unfaithfulness, and two, they removed entirely the last clause of that verse. Remember, Jesus had more to say than that. They took out completely the last sentence of the verse. 
I'm sure we each are a bit shocked and startled as we at least ponder the handling of the Word of God in ways like that. You'll notice beyond that we come to yet another translation, if I might call it that. I don't know that that's even the correct wording. Have you ever heard of the QJV? You probably have heard a lot about the KJV, the King James Version, for again, that's the one that you and I have at least referenced, and many of us have used it so often in life. There is, by this day and time, there's a QJV, the Queen James Version, as it's often called. Believe it or not, that is a, an appearance of the King James Version that is specifically ordered and directed in such a way that it endorses homosexuality. All those verses in Leviticus or in Genesis or in 1 Timothy or, yea, in passages like Romans 1 and in 1 Corinthians 6, they've all been rewritten in such a way that homosexuality isn't condemned in that version. I would ask you to notice this particular verse. I've just chosen 1 Corinthians 6 version. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor morally weak, nor promiscuous. And you probably already spotted it. It's the second to the last one in the verse. Where is the King James utilizes in the original Greek? The word is for homosexual. This one says morally weak. Now we'd all agree those aren't nearly the same. They took out part of the Word of God and changed it. If you're interested in looking at more of the ways they reworded features in that, you, you might want to pull that up and look at it on the Internet sometime. You'll be a bit surprised what they've done to Leviticus. You'll be a bit shocked at what happened to Romans chapter 1. Be that as it may, again, our statement stands in an interesting way, doesn't it? Now it's gotten to the point you can find a, quote, Bible, unquote, that will endorse nearly any pet doctrine or theology you might have. But again, that's not a faithful, reliable version of the Bible, is it? We want the Word of God, do we not? And we don't want men to tell us what they suppose it says. We want to have the Word of God, and thanks be to God we have it. When you and I then think about the Word of God in a way like that, it brings us near the close of our time together tonight in our lesson. Perhaps we can summarize some of the things we've appreciated like this. We've highlighted tonight what a blessing it is to have the Bible, what a blessing it is to have the New Testament. But in regard to that blessing, we also appreciate that naturally the translations have occurred over the years and many of them are very fine. Aren't we thankful for faithful and reliable translations that are based upon a word-for-word -word translation philosophy? As you and I think about some of them and the confidence that we're able to have in them, I have asked you to notice that there are many that might be listed. The King James, the American Standard, others that I have asked you to appreciate. You and I can rest our faith upon these as we, of course, read them and rightly divide them. Always being aware, of course, to appreciate the unsearchable riches of Christ expressed in a, a, a translation upon which we can rely as we utilize these coming to the close of our sixth lesson in our series. What about the state of your life or mine? Is it all well with your soul tonight? Are you in faithful harmony with that which is the faithful teaching of the Word of God? 
If you've never been baptized into Christ, but you know that you've reached a stage in life in which you are a sinner and you need the forgiveness God offers, that plan of salvation is made available. We can be assured to know exactly what it is. Believe upon Jesus as a Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as a Son of God and be baptized. Those things are taught to us so clearly in the Word of God. If, though tonight, you've taken care to do that, but you have wandered away from faithfulness, the Lord waits and invites you to come back home. Just like the prodigal son who recognized the status of his condition but then made his way homeward. If we could help you also tonight by praying to God for you, we'd be delighted to do that. If we could be of assistance to you this very night, we'd be delighted to do that. Won't you come while together we stand and sing?